This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change, but worry that you'll face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring, taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Compose Conference will be taking place Thursday, February 4th, and Friday, February 5th of 2016 in New York City. Compose is a conference for typed functional programmers focused specifically on Haskell, OCaml, F-Sharp, SML, and related technologies. To find out more and to register, visit www.composeconference.org. On February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place and registration is now open. Visit lambdadays.org to find out more or to register and make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global closure community, as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with closure. Visit www.closured.de to find out more. Elixir Days will be taking place on March 4th in St. Augustine, Florida. Elixir Days is a one-day conference with a nearly full day of talks and a helping hack session to close it out. The CFP is open through January 15th and early bird registration is currently open as well. Visit elixirdays.com, that's elixir, D-A-Z-E, dot com, to find out more. Interlink Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 11th and 10th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March and the 14th through the 16th of March. Tickets to the conference are available now, and the very early bird rate is available until December 28th. Visit www.erling-factory.com slash sfbay2016 to register and to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have David Nolan. David, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, yeah, sure. I'm David Nolan. I'm a software engineer at Cognitect. I do a lot of work at Cognitect on an immutable functional relational database called Datomic, and I also spend a lot of time sort of leading the Closure Script project ClojureScript is basically a version of Clojure that compiles to JavaScript. So I had not realized you did Datomic, and I don't know if we'll get a chance to talk with that, with everything else we've done, but that's an interesting thing to know as well. So maybe we squeeze that in, maybe not. But how did you get into functional programming and what was your background of software in general? Because I believe you actually had some Lisp experience before you got into Clojure proper, right? 
I wouldn't really say Lisp experience. I mean, so I, you know, I never actually studied computer science in any formal way. My background is actually in film. I did get a degree in new media, and that's sort of what reignited my interest in programming. I mean, I'd been writing software as a hobby uh, since I was a kid, like a lot of people did, you know, basic C, C++, Pascal, that sort of thing. But I was more interested in film when I went to college. Uh, but I got back into it when I moved into to New York because, you know, software gigs pay all right, and I had sort of touched up my skills. Part of touching up my skills when I was going to this new media program at NYU was, oh, I should read a book about programming, you know. So I kind of picked two books as my reintroduction to programming, having stepped away from it for about four or five years. The first one was like the KNRC book. And then I, my other book that I used was The Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. So you really couldn't pick two more different ideas about software development. And uh, uh, the SICP sort of really struck me because I'd never used Lisp before. I actually worked through a good chunk of the book, basically, you know, the entirety of the first three chapters using PLT Scheme, which is now known as Racket. But it just left a huge impression on me because it was nothing like I'd used before. And I was really excited about it, actually. But, you know, I was sort of shocked when I looked around and I saw that nobody was really using um not nobody, but it wasn't very widely adopted scheme or common Lisp or any of these other Lisp dialects. That was like, I think, circa 2002, 2003 when I worked through SICP. And I kind of set the Lisp thing aside until 2008. By that point, I'd been doing, I'd done a lot of stuff with Java, JavaScript, PHP, that sort of thing, a lot of typical LAMP stuff. And I had basically three months between consulting gigs. And I was like, I'm going to get back into Lisp because at the time, you know, there was a lot of activity on Hacker News. People were really excited about ARC. So I picked up Common Lisp. That was a whole lot of fun. But the problem was having come from things like PHP, Python, Ruby, Java, I found the Common Lisp, while as a language to be really phenomenal, the ecosystem left a lot to be desired. The community left a lot to be desired. And towards the end of that summer, I encountered by complete accident Closure, and because Closure integrated with the JVM, and I was interested in that, I ended up switching to it. And again, it was really a hobby language for a long time, but I was really enthusiastic about it because, again, unlike other Lisps, there was a very big pragmatic component in the fact that you could tap into a much larger ecosystem. So you mentioned you came into Closure by accident. What did that look like? Was that just a talk or video, one of Rich Hickey's early talks at that point? Or was that something else that kind of put it on your radar? I forget exactly how I came across it. I'm sure it was somebody mentioned it. And then I Googled it and I found the website. And the thing that really struck me was after having spent a lot of time trying to set up a common list environment, which took a really long time, I was impressed by the fact that this thing was just a jar. I could download it. And, you know, it was just a shell command to run the thing. There wasn't really much more involved than that. To be fair, I mean, getting started with Common Lisp now, uh, it's pretty easy, especially thanks to things like Quick Lisp. But back when I was doing this, there really was no comparison. Doing something with Clojure was really trivial. But yeah, it was, it was just because I found the website. I downloaded a jar and it worked. That was it. That was why I started. It wasn't really deeper than that. I wasn't actually at the time very familiar with Haskell or pure functional programming or any of those things. It was very much because, oh, it's a Lisp that runs against the JVM. 
it just gives a testament to adoption of a language based off ease of getting started and removing most of the impediments for someone who's just wanting to check it out and get up and running and just get a feel for it. And instead of having a big overhaul that says, yeah, okay, I was going to check it out, but it's too much effort for me to just figure out if, if this is even something I might possibly be interested in. Yeah. So did you actually spend much time on Clojure or did you kind of start making your way to Clojure Script pretty early on at that point? So that was 2008. So Clojure Script didn't appear for another three years. So for me at, at that time, I had a variety of hobby projects. I worked on a port of Mini Canron to Clojure, which became CoreLogic. Around that time, I had these other small open source libraries that I contributed to. It was really just a language for me for the first two, three years, just a language enthusiast hobby thing, really. I wasn't employed anywhere where I, I could actually use it for any real work for quite some time. Even when ClojureScript came out in 2011, I was at that time already at the New York Times, and all, all the work we were doing there was already standardized around Rails and jQuery. That was about it. Okay, because I know there was a ClojureScript like V01 kind of thing that they started doing pretty early on. But I knew you also took ClojureScript, and I thought you kind of were leading, helping to lead the revamp of it because I think it went dead for a little bit and kind of pushed off to the side to focus mainly on the stronger core JVM component of Clojure in a similar way that Clojure.net kind of got sidelined by the main core team and it had to go be picked off by other people to help keep it alive where we're going to essentially... We want to establish the core basis of the language first before we start spinning off all these forks and diverging too much and having people go off and not think through things because we're trying to do three implementations at a time kind of thing. Right, right. So so that it's not quite how it went down. It's hard to remember now because ClojureScript is old, you know, relatively speaking, if you're talking about technologies that people use to get work done, it's four years old now. So really what happened was that at the time, I think there was still, it was still called Relevance, now Cognitech. They had a big push to get it out the door. And so what they shipped was a sort of a minimum viable product. And actually, they'd done a ton of work. All the core, as you say, things were there. And, you know, Rich, as you say, he was like, this is like, you know, if this is going to become a successful thing, it's really going to require the closure community to embrace it because it's a huge project. And they shipped, again, the fundamentals, uh, but it was even from the beginning, it was clear that it was only going to ever fulfill its promise uh, if there was a lot of effort from the outside. So I got involved because my expertise, you know, uh, probably more so than anybody else at Relevance, I had a lot of expertise in JavaScript. I'd been doing JavaScript professionally for six years, very familiar with what patterns can or cannot optimize. And so what I did was I got involved, I fixed some things, added some features, and then I started working optimization, and I landed optimizations, and things got faster. Eventually, I think within eight months or something, people started implementing persistent data structures. We started benchmarking. We started verifying that, yes, V8 could actually deliver on JVM-comparable performance for persistent data structures. And we just went with that because, you know, I fought, again, I was heavily following all the JavaScript stuff. And I knew what was in the pipeline for all the major JavaScript engines. And it was inevitable that they would all eventually meet the performance criteria for persistent data structures. 
So we just moved very quickly. And within a year, we ported all the persistent data structures from basically Java into ClojureScript itself. And that was a cool first thing in that ClojureScript was the first dialect of Clojure in which the data structures are all implemented in the language. Huge repercussions for bootstrapping, which had happened this year, which is also pretty cool. But it was really going. I mean, it was it was going the whole time. I mean, it, as from an outside perspective, it might not have seemed like that. But the development has been steady the entire four years. There's never been a moment where somebody hasn't been working on it. Okay. And I was trying to think if it was even a little bit earlier about it, because I remember hearing a couple of the early interviews on the Think Relevant podcast, now the Cognicast, about here's closure script and then you're like here's the closure script v2 like almost reboot but not quite and it was that kind of history where it was like okay now we're starting to pick up steam again and kind of the we started down this route we realized we made some mistakes we're going to go back we're going to fix those mistakes and kind of give it new life because the route we were starting to do doesn't quite align with i guess some of the features of javascript coming down the line as you mentioned but again, it had been a while since I heard that story too. Yeah, yeah. So. so it's 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 hard to remember. It's just it's been a while. But no, that never happened. We never went back and changed anything. As to why the interest in it has exploded, there's really two things. One thing is that React happened, and more far, far, far faster than the JavaScript community did, ClojureScript embraced React overnight because it just solved the problem of we want a UI story which is compatible with immutable data structures. And we just got that for free with React. So it was an instant conversion. And that created a huge flood of interest in ClojureScript. It was like, wow, that's really crazy. React, which seems like a JavaScript thing, is a perfect fit for this compiled-to-JavaScript language, which has a very sophisticated immutable data structures built into it. So that was the first wave. And then even more recently, there's been even more excitement uh, largely not actually due to ClojureScript itself, but due to the amount of people using it. So we have sort of have network effects now. There are people working on very nice, very user-friendly REPLs. FigWheel has sort of come out and just taken the REPL part of ClojureScript by storm. Almost everybody uses it. It's a very productive tool. You've seen testing libraries, like a good testing story come out. You've seen dev cards, which is a really incredible way to test UIs and to design UIs. And just from the number of people in the community, I think what's happened is that while ClojureScript has been active continuously for four years, the network effects now make it seem like, oh, they reinvented everything. When really, we really never, not really nothing big ever changed. The fundamentals were always there. We never went back and revisited anything at all. It was really all additive. The big thing that happened this year that people are excited about for probably some of the right reasons, but also some of the wrong reasons, is that ClojureScript self-compiles, meaning that you can the compiler can compile itself into JavaScript, which is if you wanted to rebuild the last four years of tooling, okay, you could do that in JavaScript. I strongly suspect people will realize that's not worth the effort. But what bootstrapping is awesome for is online editors, interactive guides, tutorials, there's all these examples now of people using the Bootstrap Closure Script in the browser to make really beautiful, really cool demos. It's awesome. But again, from the outside, it may appear like Closure Script has reinvented itself. But that's what's really funny about like Bootstrap Closure Script. It's the same compiler. It's not a different compiler. It's the same. It's one code base. 
it just had it just you know the way we had did, designed it from the beginning it made self compilation trivial yeah and i just remember hearing about it for a while and again i i don't know if it was cuz i've been hearing about it and had it on my radar for a while cuz before one of the first real functional languages i dug into was closure so that would have been on my radar and i remember kind of seeing closure script start to get some of its first hype yeah 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 around because people are like, hey, you know what? I can this again. This is all before the big Node thing at push as well, where I can kind of use the same language on the front end and the back end. It may not be a lot of code reuse, right? Just depending on the early days, but I can take advantage of actually the way of thinking and the functionality and the features that I get when I have closure and apply that to front end development as well. So part of that is at what point did you kind of notice closure script grow from just people in Clojure deciding to use it on the front end. And have you noticed it kind of grow out to be people using Clojure script on the front end and they may not even be writing Clojure on the back end or at least the whole system on the back end? So we almost never see this, but actually you brought up a good point was the code sharing thing. So actually that was another thing that I thought got fixed. And I think that's generated a lot of more interest from both outside and inside. Because Closure 1.7 actually has a feature that came, it came out this year called reader conditionals. So there's first class support for sharing code between Closure, Closure Script, and Closure CLR. And actually people have immediately started making their libraries be compilable onto both targets or, or all three targets. So there is a really good code sharing story and people are taking advantage of it. And what I've witnessed is not, we, we have hardly any interest in closure script if people aren't interested in closure. Occasionally we have people come in and dabble with closure script because closure script by itself is quite cool. But nine times out of 10 people try closure script and they're like, whoa, this is amazing. And they immediately decide to use closure on the back end because they see that, oh, I can share code. I can share best practices. I can share patterns. What I'm starting to see is you see there is not in Clojure and Clojure Script a distinction between front-end and back-end people. Because the language is quite powerful and sophisticated, people are happy to do either component of their stack. That makes sense, and I can see where that would be the common scenario. I just wasn't sure from your perspective of we've got this big old legacy app. We're not necessarily going to be able to replace all of this, but we're doing an undertaking to reinvent our UI. Right. So maybe we can pull closure script in and actually take advantage of things like ohm and closure script and a bunch of these other stuff instead of just saying, yeah, we're, we're going to just do everything in, in JavaScript. And we can make the push on the JavaScript and the front end side because I've noticed the front end gets reinvented and redone a whole lot more than a lot of these back end systems. So it makes it easier to kind of switch technologies, at least partly. Yeah. So I didn't know how much of that was adoption there that says, look, thank you, David. Thank you, Closure Script. We love this. And we'd love to do Closure, but there's no way we're doing the backend system in Closure. But we're able to take advantage of this full upfront and start integrating this into sub-segments of our single page app or specific pages of a multi-page app kind of thing. You do see this, but it's definitely a very small, small, small percentage of the population. It's just not very many people that are interested in that. There are definitely companies that have done that but it doesn't make up the majority of the user base. Yeah, and I I doubt it would because I figured it, but it was just kind of comparable to things like Elm or PureScript or some of these others where it's like, there are these other options out there if we want to take advantage of them. We don't have to write 
and be tied to JavaScript specifically because it just comes down to JavaScript and the interop story from everything I've heard from people talking about it is pretty fantastic. Yeah, but that's really what sets ClojureScript apart from Elm and PureScript and TypeScript and all these other things. It's really like if you want to use the same language, then ClojureScript just wins. So while these other languages may have a lot, like, again, types are great. Functional programming is great. All this stuff is great. But if your goal is to have some sort of unified code base, that's really why you would pick ClojureScript. It's, I think if your only interest is we want to fix something on the front end or use something on the front end, and we don't care about some sort of unified abstraction across our system, then ClojureScript is much less compelling. And so I think that's why we consistently see people that use ClojureScript either immediately switch their backend part that they want to do to Clojure, or it's just a Clojure shop embracing ClojureScript because they want to, again, have one system and not two different languages in their stack. I can see that completely. That's what I was wondering. It seemed like a lesser scenario, but I was wanting to confirm since you probably get the feedback of the community and how people are using it. Yeah, it's not very big. It's not a, it's not a very, very um, large number of people. So kind of digging back to some of the early days, taking ClojureScript and actually taking a Clojure and putting it on the JavaScript framework. I know people have tried things across a bunch of different languages, like Haskell trying to get it run into JavaScript and separate from PureScript. And then there's an Erlang implementation and all these other kinds of implementations being ported to JavaScript. Did you find that the JVM kind of aligned with the JavaScript runtime a little bit better that made that a more consistent environment where the patterns and some of the stuff you're doing actually feels like it works across all the platforms versus having to do some weird and funky stuff that says, well, the runtime for JavaScript now doesn't support threads. It is concurrent. And the fact that it's non-blocking and something else can run, but we don't get the concurrency in the JavaScript runtime where we do in the Java runtime. And how did you find some of the balances of those features that went along because the fundamental platform differences. Right, right. So, yeah, it's a great question. First off, I mean, something that really makes life a lot simpler, and a lot of people, it's just true, is that Clojure is dynamically typed, and because it's dynamically typed, it really sort of eliminates a huge host of problems around, like, what is the type system for our language versus the type system of the language of the host. And of course, the semantics of the Java type system is really complicated, and we can just avoid that just by being dynamically typed, uh, Clojure from the get-go said trivial interop. There's no bridging of any kind, right? It's all just JVM bytecode in the end. So the interop is first class. It's very natural to interact with Java libraries. Fortunately, syntactically, Java and JavaScript are very, very, very similar because of the work that was initially done around JavaScript for marketing reasons in the 90s. And so it just, you know, out of the sh sheer fact that Syntactically, Java and JavaScript aren't terribly different. The interop story for ClojureScript is basically the same as Clojure's, except it's even better because since JavaScript is dynamically typed, we don't need things like type hints to avoid reflection and all this other stuff. All the JavaScript engines uh, optimize without the user need to explicitly provide that information at all. Things like Enclosure, because of the way the JVM works, you need to do a lot of stuff to get unboxed arithmetic. And that's not how JavaScript engines work. JavaScript engines, they just observe your arithmetic, and then if they can see that it's safe, 
they'll just unbox everything for you and inline everything for you. So we don't have that problem. Technically, JavaScript only has floating point, but of course, that doesn't work for many types of things you'd want to do that you want to be fast. So again, they just infer that, oh, this looks like integer arithmetic. We can do this in a safe way so that we can get the perf that we want. And this is, again, this is all stuff that ClojureScript just gets for free, largely by not trying to impose any semantic, right? So Clojure doesn't have a specification. It doesn't, have a sp- it doesn't say anything about concurrency because it gets concurrency from Java. It doesn't say anything about numerics because it gets its numerics from Java. And simply by sort of kind of hand-waving that stuff, uh, the hosty stuff, Clojure should, again, it just embraces whatever the host semantics are for those things. With respect specifically to concurrency, I mean, JavaScript is single-threaded. It may in the future get threads, but I doubt it will happen in the palatable way for ClojureScript. And so it was really great when Core Async came out. And what Core Async does, and, you know, this was well known when, you know, people were describing the properties of communicating sequential processes, is that it doesn't matter if the environment supports threads or not. The whole point of the CSP model is that you can talk about asynchrony and concurrency, regardless of whether there's actually any multi-threading actually going on in your system. And so that's what's really cool about Core Async is that you have a huge amount of portable semantics uh, because it's more abstract than are there threads involved or not. So it sounds like the platform of JavaScript and the JVMs actually were similar enough in most respects. And the fact that Closure was general enough in the way it treated things that it actually became pretty, I want to say easy, but that's the wrong word, but more straightforward to migrate because you didn't actually have to think about the underlying semantics and you were able to sidestep a lot of problems that you might have had to do if you were trying to port other languages that had completely different processing style models or something else like that, where Haskell is inherently lazy or Erlang expects lightweight threads under the covers or whatever OCaml brings you that specific and gets you functionalities where Clojure just says, look, we've got these functions, we've got this stuff, and then we're built on other higher level abstractions. Yeah, I think it's very, very much the case. Clojure was always very conservative about things that the JVM could not deliver. You know, Clojure never had things like continuation, never had things like tail call optimization. And by avoiding that stuff, these are all things that would have been a liability if we wanted to port that stuff to JavaScript. If Clojure had said, we're going to do these things that the host can't support. It's one of these things in the beginning, people were like, well, why don't you do these things? They seem useful. Uh, and there's, it's, it's, it's always the case. It's a trade-off, right? Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's great for this thing, but maybe in some future world where you want to run on JavaScript, and you actually want to be able to deliver acceptable performance on a completely different target, these other higher-level features, they just become liabilities. And one thing I would guess that probably helped with the migration and potential code reuse, at least from a core language perspective between Clojure and ClojureScript, would be that Clojure is still a relatively small language, and there's a lot of stuff that's done with macros that expand it. And so that would probably get you a lot of wins too when moving over to Clojure Script as well, where we just need to implement the things that are actually functions and real behaviors that depend on the underlying interop and platform and a lot of the other language features we don't actually have to rewrite because they're just 
extensions and macros that take advantage of the base level of features. Is that accurate? That is. So, uh, it's accurate in the sense of like uh, closure is very much in this sense like a traditional list. There's only a handful of special forms, like 11 or 12 or something. And all the macros, and a lot of them are shared between Clojure and ClojureScript, they just expand to the primitive stuff. And the primitive stuff is the only thing that the compiler ever sees. So the compiler deals with a very small set of things, and it just needs to generate good JavaScript for a very small set of things. And as you say, everything else, these higher-level syntactical things are all provided by macros. So that's right. That's exactly right. So you're working on ClojureScript. You've got a couple versions out. Is there anything that's coming up on the radar that you want to talk about before we move on to our next topic and kind of give people something to watch for of what the future of ClojureScript might look like in the next medium term of year or what's currently on your vision of the roadmap as a contributor and as part of the core team of ClojureScript? At this point, we're actually, it's pretty nice. So it used to be that ClojureScript Development was very fast. We would release sometimes <laughs> twice a week. I mean, I think that happened a few times, but it's not that way anymore. The fundamentals are now like really solid. We basically slowed down to like a release every two months. And this is really good for downstream tooling, whether that's build tools, REPLs. By having a slower paced release cycle, it means that users can depend on the stability of their tooling, which is extremely important. In the past, there was just so much work to do, but finally we're at a place where there's no pressure to just constantly release. We release only when there's a significant thing to change. A lot of the stuff moving forward, it's just decreasing build times. Like I just recently landed parallel compilations, so we can use as many cores as you have to do your build. There are things like we want to have a better story for integrating the various JavaScript modules formats that exist, whether that's CommonJS or AMD or ES2015, ECMAScript2015 modules. So uh, moving forward, a lot of stuff is just about faster and better integration with the massive JavaScript ecosystem. But hardly anything in terms of features. We're kind of probably more or less done with anything with respect to language-level things. Language-level stuff tends to come from Clojure. We never do anything feature-wise that doesn't have some precedent in Clojure. So if features appear, they will most definitely appear in Clojure first, and then we'll implement them. But, you know, I, there's, I'm not aware of anything on the roadmap for Clojure either. So, no, there's no, no big features planned in the future. So you're pretty much all caught up with in parity of what Clojure provides then in ClojureScript. You're not, say, on Clojure... 1.4 features are working on 1.5, 1.6, and 8 being an RC, so you still got a lot of stuff. You're pretty much up on parity of what's in Clojure proper versus Clojure script. Then. That's right. That's right. We're you know, we're pretty much in lockstep right now. It's like I think the Clojure script version, the current version is 1.7.170, which is the first two numbers matched to Clojure 1.7. We're pretty much feature parity with 1.7, and there's nothing new in 1.8 that we need to address. So we'll be in sync with 1.8 as well. And then just remembered one last question I had before we move on to the next topic about ClojureScript was, you mentioned the bootstrapping and everything. At one point I heard that if you wanted your Clojure macros, you were relegated to compile time macros. Does that mean some of these Clojure macros are now able to be 
runtime evaluated as well with this bootstrapping and closure and closure script bootstrapping, or is it still a compile time only kind of macro system for closure script? It's still a compile time only. So a lot, what a lot of people don't really understand is that closure script has a completely different macro system from closure. And the semantics of it are just different. And in order for bootstrap and non-bootstrap code to be portable, we're not changing the semantics at all. You only get compile time macros. Of course, you could, you know, if you wanted to, you could muck around with the compiler when you bootstrap it to make it work in some other way. But that code is effectively non-portable. And nobody messes with this uh, because it becomes very self-evident that you've just written non-portable code. So while technically, yes, it's possible, it's not really something that's worth doing because it's not really closure script anymore. That makes sense. I just wasn't sure because I've heard that was one of the caveats as well in using Clojure and Clojure Script. If you were trying to share some of that code, at least as a library that's agnostic, was some of the macro stuff. So I wasn't sure if that was still holding true or if that was a misconception of mine. No, you still have to separate your macros. And what people do in order to have portable code is they move their macros into a separate namespace. And those macros can be shared between Clojure and Clojure Script. So it's just, it's really just a code organization thing. You can't have them be in the runtime file, but it, it's a minor thing. You just move some code around and now you have macros that work for both targets. Okay. Yeah. That clears it up quite a bit. So continuing kind of on the closure script vein, but switching topics was the other jump that I kind of recognized closure script had was when you first did your prototype for Ohm and kind of sent that out to, into the world and said, Hey, I've been playing with React. I've been playing with it in JavaScript. And then I tried to see what it would be like in ClojureScript and how I might do take advantage of the things that ClojureScript had. And here's my demo for Ohm. And I noticed that got a lot of rehype and people talking about ClojureScript, if not migrating to it, at least identifying some of those values of saying, hey, yeah, after your presentation of like, this is a lot faster than React because we don't have to do checking of everything. We can look at pointer and see if the references are the same because they're immutable data structures and some of those other features that you were able to take advantage of that slowly kind of moved back into JavaScript as far as inspiration of ClojureScript. So can you kind of dig into Ohm and the background of Ohm and kind of that life cycle of coming up with Ohm for a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that idea with React was really not my own idea. I mean, you know, th these sort of ideas have been floating around in the functional world for quite some time. Though I don't think anybody ever made the leap to be like, well, let's make this work in the browser. To make that leap is a huge leap because now suddenly it's something a very large population of developers care about. Otherwise, it's just sort of like a weird novelty and it's just an academic thing. And so with Ohm, I was like, oh, we can take these immutable data structures, which seem academic, and we can take React, which at that point, people were like, that's just that weird thing with XML literals. And I said, oh, we can take these two very computer science-y things and actually build real stuff. And it won't be an academic exercise. You'll be able to write well-performing UI programs in a very unconventional way, even though, again, the idea had always sort of existed in the functional world. This was sort of like making it real to a more mainstream audience, so to speak. But the idea of trying this was actually because I had met one of the Facebook React developers. And then I was started following some of them on Twitter. 
And one of them said, oh, yeah, we used a persistent data structure in our comment view. And, you know, we got an order of magnitude performance increase. And I was like, really? Okay, I have to try React. And that's what made me do my little spike for a month to see if I could recreate his claim. And then, as it turned out, I was able to. And then that sort of kicked things off. Yeah, it seemed to be getting a lot of hype in between ClojureScript with Ohm and React kind of put both of those on the radar and made it seem like the web component, at least from my preliminary understanding when I was first hearing about it, was that web component dream of coming from a .NET background, people would want to sell you, hey, here's your button or here's your like here's your input field with a label and get down to a more MVC where each control at a smaller level is there. And then we're being able to compose those with functions and take the functional approach to that and actually have things that don't change and say, look, as we build down and we build down through this nested tree of a structure that we have as our app state, that we can then say, well, each element in the app state represents a subcontrol if you design it right. And you can kind of build these down into smaller things and take care of it. So. It it was something that seemed like an interesting thing to pull inspiration from. And so how did you find, because it's from the outside looking in, it looked like after your one month spike and you announced it and talked about it at one of the conges, I think, it seemed to get a lot of hype and ramp up from that. And people started doing it, even though it's like a 0.1 or 0.2 release that you were just like, this is just me playing around with it for a month. There's still a ways to go, but people are like, we want it now. Yeah, I think if you're involved in UI work, you sort of understand that state is problematic in all systems, but in UIs, it's really the fundamental problem because whether you're doing things in a functional way or not, it really doesn't matter. UIs are just very stateful. There's just a lot of state involved in the construction of UIs that people actually want to use. So people were open to the idea of, let's try this. Let's see if it's simpler. And there are properties about it that are simpler. But of course, once people started going down this way and people bought into the hype and that's cool, but there's a whole host of new problems. Like you embrace this idea and then you see that, yes, this is a very promising approach and you can build a lot of things in a practical way. But as you scale up, then there's all these new problems you didn't have before. And what are you going to do about those problems? And these things are something that everybody's aware of. React answered this with Flux. Now they have a thing called Relay. React has a thing called Redux now. And then, of course, in ClojureScript, you have complementary alternate takes on using React, like you have Reagent, which is extremely popular. It's very cool. You have Quiescent and a bunch of others. And then, of course, now I'm heading off in a different direction with Ohm Next after having basically over the past two years come to a deeper understanding of the possibilities of immutable data structures in React. So what does that deeper understanding look like that's driving you to make the move to Ohm Next? Before we get into Ohm Next, what are some of those things that you've realized that is informing that decision? Some things are just really practical. I mean, one thing is that like, you know, while the immutability trick that I talked about in the beginning does work for a lot of UIs, and it actually works pretty well on desktops, even for really complex UIs, the top-down rendering, because you can do the diffing it's basically logarithmic. But still, what happens is that, okay, it takes 10 milliseconds to re-render our entire UI, and you're on a i7, you know, iMac in Safari or Chrome. 
But you put that onto your iPhone or your Android, which has 10x worse performance. Uh, and now you, it takes 100 milliseconds to do a full re-render. And that's way below the 16 millisecond or 32 millisecond frame rate target. So you need to do something else. And so more or less, Ohm Next does not really rely on the immutability trick at all. The immutability is purely about reasoning. We do get a little bit of performance benefit. But in the new thing, it's all about incremental rendering and incremental query recomputation. It's all about being incremental, all the perf stuff. The immutability thing now is not really the source of performance. Uh, and this is because we want performance everywhere, not just on people with fast machines. We want to be fast on mobile. And from what I've heard, well, here in the U.S., a lot of people have fast mobile phones. And it's hard to find things like an iPhone 3. Those iPhone 3s are very popular in other countries that might not be quite up to speed. And so they have, you're working on the iPhone 3 and people are like, oh yeah, well, this blazes on my iPhone 6 still, but we forget to test the iPhone 3 and 4s that are out there that we don't think about because Apple doesn't push those and let us use those here in the US as much. Right, right. So yeah, just thinking about the incremental thing is just thinking about performance in a much broader way. Something that can work, again, for more devices. So Ohm Next, I just had Conrad Barsky on, and we were talking, and he was saying some of the interesting stuff that he thinks is Ohm Next is part of this GraphQL integration that you're looking for, and then that you're starting to introduce some other abstractions of how you actually get to the data based off what the actual data is represented as versus how you might want it to look from a control. So what are some of those things in Ohm Next that you're kind of looking for and driving for for people who haven't been up to speed on where Ohm is going or didn't manage to catch your presentation at the cons this year, which you kind of gave some details about Ohm Next. So can you give a rundown of some of those features and then why so people can go check out more? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, a lot of people, if you just come to Ohm Next right now without doing a little bit of, I would say, homework first, it may be hard to see where it's coming from. Ohm Next is very much designed after a very, very long almost year-long assessment of Relay, and that's Facebook's thing. It's very cool. So Facebook has this thing called Relay and GraphQL, and so Omnex is heavily modeled at the high level on what it's trying to achieve, and then it's also heavily designed after Falcor, which is Netflix's sort of very nice, clean, remoting data abstraction. So without knowing what those two things are about, I think you'll have a hard time seeing why Ohm is designed the way that it is. But both Relay and both Falcor embrace this idea that your data is a graph. It doesn't really matter what your database is. Most of what you want to send to the client is basically taking some graph of relationships and converting that into a UI data tree that you want to present. And that's really what Ohm Next is all about, right? You have some graph of objects and you want to convert that graph into a tree for rendering purposes, I mean, all the design decisions are oriented around making that as convenient as possible. But by doing things this way, you can get a lot of things for, you know, quote unquote free. One thing is that like GraphQL, we co-locate queries on components. The query fragments are composable. And because the query, actually in our case, it's just data. 
It's trivial to forward any fragment to any service. In fact, you could forward fragments to multiple remote services, or you could forward a fragment of a query to a remote service, and that remote service could forward some other sub-fragment to a different service. So the whole thing is just one big recur, like one big recursion in the cloud. You know, that's kind of what the big idea is. And again, that's, you know, I don't really take credit for that. Falcor and Relay really had this idea and I saw that there was really the same idea. And then I, with Ohm Next, I was like, well, we can get that same feature if we just embrace, I work on Datomic, if we embrace this thing in Datomic called a pool syntax, we can make a version of it that's much more closure, closure script friendly. Both Relay and Falcor don't have much of a good integration story if you're building closure systems. And so digging into GraphQL a little bit, was it looks like you're sending up a JSON payload without values and you kind of just say, here's the structure of what I want to get. It goes up to some sort of server that's kind of a gateway that will then either do it all itself or farm it out, as you said, to the other places in the cloud and then send back down that whole structure back down with the values populated in it. If you're doing this in Ohm Next, I'm assuming you've played with it. So how have you found some of the advantages of doing that style of data request and access between client and server versus the other formats that have been done of more general request response for data and the difference and the benefit that you're seeing from the GraphQL and Falcor style of querying the server for data? So the Falcor and GraphQL style, it's fundamentally driven by the fact that like Facebook needs to write APIs, and they want that API to work for your desktop. They want it to work for your tablet. They want it to work for your iPhone. Netflix wants it to work on all those. They want it to work on your set-top box. What's happening is you have these underpowered devices with kind of not very good network connections, slow network connections, lots of latency. And so the, the big thing that's driving the design of these systems is that everybody's building stuff for at least a phone and a browser, like a desktop browser. The phone really wants to make as few requests as possible. One, you want to make one request. You don't want to make five or six or seven. You want to make one request for the data and you just want to be done. So that's just the old next thing. It's just request batching and just being more disciplined about how that request is batched. So it's not just about batching, right? Because if you just, I mean, you can do batching without doing this, but it's about batching in such a way that what you get from the server is immediately renderable. You don't have to transform it, right? There's no transformation step. Transformation steps are often extremely error prone. The whole model here is that the client says, I want this structure. It gets to dictate the structure. And this just removes a whole class of bugs, right? The back is not going to change the structure of the thing and you're not going to break all these different clients, right? Every client gets to say, this is the data I want. This is the shape that I want it in. And it has to match. So it solves lots of things at once. It solves the latency problem. And it also solves the fact that you have lots of different clients, all of which have different requirements. This is a way to, you know, give every client exactly what they need. So it sounded familiar from other people describing it. And the metaphor that I just equated it to as you were talking about it some more was in the same way that you don't want to make if you're doing a standard web server to database call. You don't want to make a thousand requests for pieces of data. You want to create a database query that says, here's all the information I want. 
And then I also don't want to do a select star from that information. I want to specify my queries and maybe even let it compute the average instead of my web server do that. So I can see the parallels there. Have you noticed any drawbacks against the GraphQL model from when you're playing with it and the ways of thinking? The one thing I can think of offhand would be a question of how do you manage subcomponents and queries of subcomponents based off caching that says this thing hasn't changed and making requests for that and processing. So how do you kind of balance the ability to say only parts of this data structure have changed in the same way that you can kind of do that with an immutable data structure that says top levels changed, but two of the three child nodes haven't, and I only need to refresh that one sub thing. So the caching problem is actually, there's no simple answer to that because so part of it is the way that Ohm Next and the way that Falcor and Relay work they all support some form of client caching. So when you run a query the first time, well, you have no data, so you know you need to run the full query. All three systems, once you run the first query, they all have ways of saying, I know that only this subpart of the query has changed. I don't need the whole thing anymore. So the client is actually heavily involved in figuring out what is missing or what has changed. Because it's this is an idea from REST, right? You This is REST. You have some operations are just reads and some are mutations. And of course, they're going to invalidate caches. So there's no novelty there as in the big picture. So the client knows to some degree what has or has not changed. Ohm Next is a little bit novel in that because of the way that closure script data structures work and the fact that they're, the hashing algorithm is the same on every JavaScript engine, uh, you can reliably partition your query to say, in a bigger way, this part of the query needs to be directed to a an HTTP caching layer, and this other part of the query is a dynamic request, and it should actually hit the app server. Yeah, yeah, so there are really two components to the, to the caching thing. One is that clients help compute what the minimal set of things that need to be recomputed are, but then there's another thing that Omnext does, which is novel, compared to Falcor and Relay in that it has a very good way to re-leverage both traditional HTTP caching layers as well as the client browser cache itself. Neither Falcor nor Relay have this capability. Yet, yet, I should clarify, yet. I'm sure they're they're thinking about it now that Omnext has it. That sounds good. And it was more than just the caching, but I didn't know if you found any things that were... Oh, oh the trade-offs, right, the trade-offs. I mean, it is a bit novel, so people haven't designed endpoints like this, so people are working through, I would say that like the challenges here that I see are things like, okay, how do we deal with errors? You know, because like, you're right, you're fanning out this recursive query. If an error happens in some subfragment, how do you deal with that? That's an important question, and we're sorting through that. We have questions like, well, what about authentication? So, you know, we have a pattern where we thread authentication information into the fan out. So we can deal with that. But again, that's like a little bit different from what people were doing before. So a lot of the trade-offs are, are not so much about problems that can't be surmounted. It's just problems you didn't have before. And what's the best way to deal with that? Those sound like at least good warnings for people who may be wanting to jump in and start playing with it without whether it's Omnex or React or Relay or Falcor or whatever it is without... And just saying, here's the things that are different that you're going to have to think about and not just go on. So you kind of mentioned 
mobile and desktop and web and stuff a little bit. Does that mean Ohm is general enough that it can be run on both Clojure and ClojureScript, or is Ohm primarily a ClojureScript technology? As in, could I use Ohm or Ohm Next on my desktop app that helps render some of these Java UI stuff if I'm writing a desktop app? Am I able to take advantage of some of the Ohm stuff if I'm writing closure for that or is this is own relegated to closure script specifically you know i'm not i'm probably not going to spend any of my own time <laughs> on making it work with javafx or whatever or swing i imagine that it's within the realm of possibility ohm next is very much designed with again the reader conditionals in mind so there's a good portion of the code base that can be run in both closure and closure script i'm extremely interested in server side rendering so react has kind of like a suboptimal story for server-side rendering. And there was a great talk at the most recent conj about parameterizing the HTML rendering parts so that if you run a Ohm component on the back end, you get very fast HTML rendering without needing to run a JavaScript environment. So, I mean, I could imagine further off in the future that maybe that's possible, but it's, it's not really a focus area right now. It was just more of a question of if someone has played with it or if someone might like these ideas but still be doing desktop stuff, how applicable it might be. It's not a focus. That said, I mean, one thing that is a focus because of our integration with React is iOS and Android. So there's already a bunch of people who have Ohm Next applications running on Android and iOS because we get that for free from React. That sounds pretty nice. So we're getting close to time. I no, there's a few topics we didn't get to, but I know there's one other thing you're kind of semi-involved in, and I figured might be an interesting idea to at least give a brief overview of, was your kitchen table coders, because you've managed to get a couple of people all together. I don't know if you're, it's quite co-working space, or but you also do some, occasionally when you have time to squeeze it in, is some little events in the evenings around that group. So do you want to give a brief rundown and just kind of pitch the idea for anybody who might find it valuable and decide they want to take inspiration and do something locally for them? So Cognitech is now, I think, mostly a remote company. And, you know, you know, the hard thing about going remote, unless you've just been doing it for a long time and you're okay with working by yourself, is that, you know, you get lonely. You don't have people to talk to or have lunch with or, you know, bounce ideas off of. And I've found it extremely important and valuable to have smart, cool people sort of in a space, whether we're actually working on the same thing or not, I think it just does wonders for your state of mind to not be, you know, sitting in front of a computer in your room by yourself all the time. So I've had this shared workspace for about nine years. And due to increasing rent, of course, in New York, it's grown. And so now there's, a, it's really great. We have nine people and it's a variety of artists and computer programmers and illustrators and data scientists and a lot of people. There's a lot of lists here. It's, it's kind of a little bit nutty. There's quite a few people doing Clojure or Lisp or other programming languages stuff. It's just fun. It's a cool way to go to work and you know be enthusiastic about you know the people that are around. And uh, yes, occasionally we run workshops. We had a very successful Datomic Ohm Next workshop in October. We're probably going to do one in the near future. And, you know, there's talks about doing like a game workshop or a game conference here because two of the people here, Tim's Gardner and Ramsey Nasser, 
They work on this thing called Arcadia, which is a game development environment based on Clojure CLR for Unity. So it's really awesome. It's game development with Lisp, and it's a pretty amazing piece of software. They're heavily involved in games, and they want, they're thinking about doing a game conference. So yes, yeah, so there's lots of ideas floating around. And yeah, I just, I just think it's sometimes, if you, if you can make it happen, if you can find a space, and you're not actually all employed at the same place, it's nice to just, like, hey, let's get a bunch of people, let's put the rent, and we can have a nice sort of semi-collaborative work environment. Well, that sounds good, and I didn't realize it was broader than just a bunch of other coders as well that you knew. Yeah, 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 no, no, no. So it's, I mean, everybody's involved in technology in one way or another, but everybody has very diverse backgrounds. Like I said, like one person was an actor and a clown, you know, <laughs> you know, Tim's is an illustrator, really. And he sort of didn't even start programming closure until like three years ago or something. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a diverse group of people. That sounds really good and really interesting. And if I ever am in New York for a conference or anything, and you all are doing one of your events in the evening, uh, it's something on my list to try and make it out to if that ever happens. But it's been really interesting to see some of the stuff that you've put on. So I figured it was worth at least mentioning a little bit on the podcast just so people could possibly have that spark of an idea as well if they decided to do something like that. Yeah, I recommend it. It's definitely been been a lot of fun, and we hope that we can keep it going. For quite long, quite a bit longer, as long as the Brooklyn rent overlords don't push us out. So, is there anything else we missed talking about? I know there's a few things we would have been nice to, so we'll probably have to get you on. I'll probably have to get you on for another episode in the future. But for this conversation, is there anything we left out or that you want to make mention to for people to go check out before we kind of start wrapping up? Not other than if people are interested in the relay Falcor stuff, I do have a bunch of talks on this now. And I'm likely to give more. So if people want to know the details, there are quite a few talks. And I definitely, I highly recommend watching the Relay and Falcor talks. Even if you're not interested in them next, I definitely think the work that's being done around those two software libraries is some of the most interesting thinking that's happening about the front end that I've seen in a long time. So where were you giving those talks? Because I know you gave a own next talk at the conch, but what are some of those places for people to track down those talks you're mentioning of? So I have a talk on QCon with my friend and collaborator Kovas Boguta about demand-driven architecture, which is sort of talking about the concept at a high level for a big audience. It's not actually closure or closure script specific. I did give an early own next talk at EuroClosure, which is kind of like the early thing before I sort of had solved a bunch of problems. And then there's the one at the ClojureCon, which is the most recent one, where I kind of lay out all the features of Omnext, and that gives a pretty accurate picture of what Omnext looks like today and is likely to just, that's what it's going to be moving forward. But yeah, check out those talks. So is there anything else you want to plug? Do you have more conference appearances that you're going to be going to in the future that you're at least booked with? Or... You mentioned a lot of projects. Is there anything else specifically you want to call out for people to go and look at or just anything in general you want people to know about? Well, I mean, there is a really good conference that I couldn't go to that I think Kovas is going to, which I think will end up being a much deeper dive into demand-driven development. I mean, there's just a lot of interest, again, around this style of client-server relationship. So Craft is in Budapest. I think it's in late April. A very cool conference I went last year. It was awesome. Highly recommended. Budapest also, I think it's right around the time when they had this amazing music festival. So if you're into classical music, 
that's pretty cool if you can make it. But no, I don't have anything lined up yet. It's a little bit too soon. I think there's some things that I'm, some people I'm talking to, but there's nothing set in stone yet. Okay. And then do you have any call to action for the listeners? You've mentioned going and checking out some of the research on React and Falcor and GraphQL just because of the ideas. But is there anything else that you want to have people go check out or take action on from after listening to this episode? Yeah, I mean, I also recommend we didn't have any time to talk about it. I mentioned at the very beginning, it definitely was also worth looking at Datomic. I mean, that was the other big influence on Omnext. So I work on Datomic. It's a cool database. And there's lots of interesting ideas. I think if you look at what GraphQL, Falcor, Relay, and Omnext are trying to do, and you also look at Datomic, I think it'll it'll give you an interesting idea of what future possible client-server systems could look like. And I actually think huge, huge, possibly really, really, really shake up how we think about UI clients. I mean, that's definitely the, the reason why I've spent so much time on Omnext, I think, is a, a big idea there. That sounds good. And probably once you get closer to Ohm next being Ohm, or once it is Ohm, we can get you back on to talk more about how it actually has evolved and what it actually became along with the integration that you've talked about at some conferences with Datomic and your work on Datomic and how each one of those plays back. So I'll have to get you back on at some point in the future to kind of go over those topics some more. Yeah, I'm definitely happy to. I I would look forward to that. So where can people find you and track you down to follow you online? Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm super active. People are often like, how can you do, how can you work on all this stuff and still answer all these questions? So if, if you're looking for me, I mean, my handle is swanodet on Twitter, but I'm always on the ClojureScript IRC channel and I'm always on the ClojureScript Slack channel. There's now a fairly large Clojure, ClojureScript Slack community. So any of these places, you have questions or you want to know more. And even if I can't answer these questions, there's just a lot of helpful people now on these channels. And so, yeah, if you are interested in finding me, you can get me in any of those places. And then you do fairly frequent, at least comprehensive as well, blog posts as well on your site as well, right? I do do blog posts. It's been a while. I haven't done anything since the summer because I got busy. There will probably be more stuff come in, you know, in 2016. Again, it's kind of good that you got me a little bit early on the Omnext thing because I haven't yet made any sort of like big announcements or big blog posts, but you can expect there will be a large number of these next year. So I'll make sure to include your site in the show notes as well for that as well. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, David, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And we'll have to get you back on to talk further things at probably in about a year for later 2016 to give you plenty of time for your own next to be ohm and everything else. So thank you very much. Thanks. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.